Hey, good people. This is your N.I. Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I have a list in front of me of 13 items, roughly 13 items. It's been a week since I've connected with you all, and I believe these 13 things have been ruminating in my brain, but I didn't have full access to them. And so if you know anything about introverted intuition, we think in this unconscious or subconscious way. Um, We think in abstraction, and we don't always have words for what we're thinking. Isn't that interesting? We don't have words for what we're thinking. And I think the only struggle I have with that is um, most introverted intuitives say that they think in symbols, excuse me, in images. I don't. I don't know if I do. I don't know if I think that way. I, I, I think in impressions. Like they're definitely impressions, but they don't always have images to them. They just don't. And so, I can't tell you what it is, other than I've all, I've explained this to you all before. An impression for me is like if you lay your head on a pillow and you're no longer laying there, you get up and you walk away. I can walk into the room and see your imprint, your head imprinted on the pillow and know that you were there, right? So I think in impressions, knowing that something is there. Sometimes those impressions have themes. Sometimes they have words on the peripheral. But they're not... I don't have them as images. I don't. I don't have them often. And sometimes I do. But when I listen to other introverted intuitives talk, it's like they always think in these images. And I'm like, I don't think that's how it is for me. Um, But I I don't know another way of explaining. But anyway... That's a brief rabbit hole, isn't it? So um, all week, I have had these impressions here. Um, so this morning, I was able to access them with words. And um, we start. I started generating a list. So um, let me read those to you. And then um, we'll do the disclaimers. And then we will get into some kind of reflection. We'll see what happens. Number one, death, the other world, and this world. Death, the other world, and this world. Number two, disassociation. And in parentheses, I have culture and ancestors. Number two is, again, disassociation. In parentheses, I have culture and ancestors. Number three, typology community and moving forward in it. And that's got a star next to it. I'll have to explain that at some point. Typology community and moving forward in it. Number four, studying Carl Jung and depth psychology. So there's a connection between three and four. Studying Carl Jung and depth psychology. Number five, what's missing in my primary work? Um, I have a primary podcast that's associated with my primary work. I finally figured out a missing piece. So I'm not going to be able to talk much about that, but that's here on the list. Number six, meaning. And in parentheses, I have belonging and loving. Meaning, belonging and loving. Number seven, education was the vehicle. Now it is the container. Education was the vehicle and now it is the container. Number eight, 
eight, it has a curse word. So if you have kids around, I need you to pause until they're not around because this is not kid-friendly. All right? You ready? Okay. Number eight, son of a bitch. And that's in parentheses, introverted sensing. <laughs> so number eight is son of a bitch, and it's related to introverted sensing. <laughs> number nine, meaning again. And this time, in parentheses, I have blackness and culture. Blackness and culture. There are three things on this list. Three things on this list that I can connect to a single theme. I'm seeing the connection. Number was that nine? Number 10, INTJ content projection. INT, INTJ content projection. And in parentheses, I have TI. We'll see what that go, where that goes. Number 11, I'm good. Are you? Number 11, I'm good. Are you? In parentheses, I have intimidation. All right, number 12, my credit score dropped. I haven't talked about my credit score in a while. I was on a, on a roll of increasing that credit score, which I have. And um, anyway, it dropped. And so what I have next to number 11, uh, 12 is the misalignment of the heteronormative world. But I really need to write the heteronormative patriarchal world. And you were like, what the hell does that have to do with the credit score dropping? <laughs> I'm going to blame it on somebody. You hear me? And number 13, the case against INTP. Not against the INTP person. And I'll have to explain that later. But well, number 13 says case against INTP. Okay. So those are the... 13 things on the list. I see some clear themes. And um, we'll see what happens, okay? Let me do my disclaimers. If you are new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two theories that I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I am a trained and practicing educator and social scientist, and I loosely identify another identity here as a critical race feminist. I do so so people can anticipate and understand that I have an intellectual sensitivity as relating to power and the social world, particularly how it shows up in constructs such as race, class, gender, and sexuality. This podcast is unedited and it is unscripted. If you want to know more about this project or why I am here doing it, please visit my website at youridom.wordpress.com. Okay. <laughs> so we're at eight minutes in. It's a little longer than I wanted to, but I had to read that list. I do want to do a couple of disclaimers, though. I forgot. Not disclaimers. I'm housekeeping. I recorded another YouTube reflection. Um, and this was in response to uh, someone who made, I watched a video on INFJs, by the way, INFJs and 
demisexuality. There's something called a demisexual. So somebody did a video on why INFJs are more likely to be demisexuals, right? So I want to, there's a lot. I didn't even unpack that. I'd love to talk about that. But somebody in the comment section challenged the idea of demisexual and, um, what is the other word? Hold on. And pansexual. And they were kind of ridiculous about it, and I wanted to respond to it. So I did a video, excuse me, a, a very short um, audio response. I haven't uploaded it to YouTube yet because that's a, an extra step that I have to go through. I have to make it a video, and then I have to upload it. And I know I told you guys last week that I responded to a follower for your, your NI Dom um, just about just some things he had he had sent me a message and I had done a YouTube video for him but I have to do that as well I have to upload it it's not uploaded so there are two videos that I need to upload and I I will hopefully I'll get to it today okay all right so those were my two housekeeping notes all right let's do a reflection it is under 10 minutes okay um so there's a clear theme. As I was going through the list, I saw some connectedness between um, number three and number four and number five. Uh, so number three was uh, the typology community moving forward in that. Uh, number four was studying Carl Jung and depth psychology. And then what's missing as number five was missing in my primary work is around depth of psychology in this time and I think I've told you that I am now ready to integrate personality theory in my primary work I feel fairly confident now and so number three four and five those are all connected so I could talk about that as a theme um, there's another theme I saw on the list number six meaning belonging and loving number eight nope 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 Nope, 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 nope. Uh, no, where's that? Hold on. Okay, numbers two, six, and nine. Number two was disassociation from culture and ancestors. Eight, excuse me, number six, meaning, belonging and loving. And number nine, meaning, blackness and culture. So those three go together as a theme. I can see that as a second theme. And then there is another theme located here. Hold on. Okay, I just counted. I had, I had you guys on pause a couple of minutes. So I have four themes and then two stragglers. And you may be wondering, like, if why didn't you just why are you just giving us a list if you can organize them into the themes? And I didn't. I just wrote the list down as it came to me. And then as I was reading the list to you, I started hearing the themes. Right. So um, if I was going to be scripted in this project are more organized, I would have been able to do that before coming in front of you. But this is a personal journal. And that is it. And that is it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so what I want to do is um, give you the two stragglers and then I'm going to, I'm going to um, come and do those, some of those themes in a separate reflection. Okay. So the one that I have, um, I want to just the, um, The two that I have, the two stragglers I have, one is number one, death, the other world, and this world, and then number 11, I'm good, are you? 
they're not related in my brain. It'd be interesting to see what I'm able to do with those two. Uh, they're not related. I don't see I don't see a theme, but I know me. I can push them together, but we'll see. I'm not even going to try. So let me just try to talk about them separately, okay? Number one, um, yeah, the other world and this world. Let me just tell you where that's coming from. So naturally, I am. But thinking about my dad, you know, he passed in September, and um, he um, he um, not he. I don't feel like I have been able to fully grieve him. I'm very nervous about that. Um, I don't even know why. Like, I don't even know why I need to analyze grief. Like, why do I need to analyze it? I don't know. But I do. <laughs> and um, so I read somewhere that grief is unexpressed love. I don't want to, I didn't feel like crying. Y'all, I don't feel like crying. This is not, I have no energy to cry, like no desire, but this is probably why it's sitting on me because I can't emotionally be in the grief. Oof, I don't want to do this one, y'all. I do not want to cry. So um, I'm going to try to come on top of the emotion because it's sitting there waiting to like burst out. <laughs> so I read somewhere that Grief is unexpressed love. And so that would make sense. Obviously, anytime somebody passes, you don't get a chance to love on them the way you were, you loved on them when they had a physical body. And so that is a loss, right? Even when, you know, like when my grandmother passed and people were like, because she was 90, she would have been 91 in, in a few months. And they were like, well, she had a good life. She looked, and I hated when people said that. Like, I don't know about your grandmother, but my grandmother's brain never left. It just never left. And that was the one thing I noticed about her dying. Like her, when her body started breaking down, but her mind never broke down. And so watching her and being with her as she was watching her health deteriorate and being able to talk about it and analyze it and have intimacy around it. It was a gift that she gave. Um, and I would imagine she, we found out that she had, um, intimate moments with all, a lot of her offspring. And my mom and I talked about this the other day that my grandmother didn't do that intimacy work with her kids. So, um, I had a therapy session, uh, this week, Wednesday, and my heart coach, I call her my heart coach, we were just talking about intimacy. And one of the things that I'm coming to terms with is I both desire intimacy. I think I've talked about this before. I desire intimacy, but I don't respect how other people do intimacy or I don't respect other people's capacity for intimacy. And it really, and I didn't say this to my heart coach, but um, I don't respect people. I don't respect people's cognition. I don't respect people's cognitive lives. Their cognitive self. 
And I know that sounds arrogant, right? But I, I, I'm sorry, I don't. Because I feel that most people don't have an active mm, cog- cognitive life. They have an active emotional life. Their cognition is on autopilot. They don't sit down to think about what they're thinking. They're not meta. So yes, they're thinkers, but they don't refine their thinking process. They don't check the health of it. And so even as I say, and you guys don't hear me say therapy session, because I don't really look at when I go and spend time with my heart coach, I don't really look at it as therapy. I mean, there was a time when I connected with this lady and that was when I was trying to, um, in my 10 year relationship. And, uh, then I was going through the grief of my grandmother's death. So that definitely felt like therapy, but I've stayed in connection with this lady, even though I'm not like tackling anything major. I mean, it's awesome. It is awesome that when something comes up, like when my dad died, I had her, I had access to her, like she had history and then we can move into a therapeutic relationship. But that's not my relationship with her now. She is a cognitive partner for me. She's a thought partner for me. Until I have something major that happens in my life that might be off-centering for me. And then we move into a therapeutic relationship. Um, so anyway, that's a lot. But um, so, But mainly I use her as a thought partner or... I call her my heart coach because she really does a good job at holding space for my emotions because I don't, I don't prioritize them. And so because she's an INFJ, she does it. And I always, it's always awesome when I watch her do it. Like, oh, that's cute. I see that thing you're doing right there. You're making space for my emotions because I'm not doing that. Oh, yay. That's great. <laughs> so anyway, we were talking about intimacy and um and what I didn't say in this, and I want to come back and share this with her now that I'm thinking about it, is that I don't, I, I crave intimacy. But again, if you don't have uh, intimacy with your mind, if you don't have intimate intellectual intimacy, I don't respect it. And I'm definitely not going to give you my intellectual intimacy in the space where you don't even know how to do that for yourself. Anyway, that was a rabbit hole, but I don't even know how I went down that rabbit hole, but, um, oh, my grandmother, I really believe I was telling my heart coach that I had intimacy with my grandmother. And after she passed, you know, we all started talking, we her our offspring, particularly her grandkids. We all started talking about private conversations we had with her. And her kids were like, we didn't have those kind of conversations with her. Well, probably she didn't do those conversations with her kids because she was younger, right? When she was raising her kids, she was a younger adult. Um, My grandfather struggled with alcoholism, so he didn't work. And he was a strain on my grandmother. So he couldn't, so she was trying to take care of seven kids. And then she also was mother to her uh, niece and her niece's child. And uh, she didn't have time to do intimacy, which makes me think about some other things on the list around meaning 
and belonging and blackness and culture and ancestors. I could easily connect intimacy there, but I don't want to do that. I want to give it its own reflection. But when you are busy doing survival, how does that translate to intimacy? How does that, how does that translate to intimacy? Well, anyway, I had intimacy with my granny because by the time my grandmother's grandkids came along, she was settled. Now, I experienced my grandmother as a working woman. Um, for the most part, she was working. I believe if she wasn't working by the time I entered into the world, it was shortly after that. So most of my memories were of my grandmother being a working woman, but that wasn't what she wasn't able to do that um, for most of her kids. So anyway, uh, she would have a fit if she knew I was saying this out loud. <laughs> uh, so I need to I need to protect her um, her memory. But um, but um, by the time her grand her, her grandkids came along, she was able to be settled. And so she she developed intimacy with us, intellectual intimacy, you know, um, and we had that anyway. Anyway, I have no idea why I went down that. So, um, so anyway, that was one of the intimate. Okay, I know where I'm at. I'm so sorry if this doesn't even translate out as interesting to you all. It's interesting to me, but I'm genuinely processing right now in real time. So when she died at 90 and a, 90 and a half and people are like, oh, she had this good life. What they don't understand is that I still had quite an active, intimate life with my grandmother intellectually. And as a person that desires and craves cognitive intimacy, intellectual intimacy, she was a person I did that with. So when she died, that was an amazing loss for me. It was a it was an it was an amazing loss because I had an a quite an active relationship, an intellectual relationship with her. So that's that. Well my dad's death though, that's different. Um because I didn't have I didn't really have intellectual intimacy with him. But in this backward twisted way, I had spiritual intimacy with him. And um, and um, it's backwards. If you're new to this project, it's backwards and it's twisted because my father was quite abusive. Uh, and um, and I don't know if I've ever processed this with myself, let alone out loud. But I don't think I don't think I experienced the brunt of his abuse as other people did. And that's really weird because he got me. <laughs> I did experience abuse through him, but I don't think I experienced the, the brunt of it. And that's because I have a background in psychology and I'm an educator and I'm me. <laughs> so I fought with him. I, I am the one, I am the one who fought with him the most. And I think because I fought with him the most, 
I didn't experience the abuse as much as other people did. But I think I hurt the most. Um, because, yeah, it's just, a, it's just, and I've done a lot of reading about when you experience abuse in a loving situation. It's not an easy thing. Uh, because that's love, right? There's love there and there's pain there. And how do you, there is no neat line where you can just cut down the dotted line and you can say, we're going to separate and put the love on this side and we're going to put the uh, abuse on that side. It doesn't work that way. And I, if you haven't checked it out, which has turned out to be a well-received reflection, I did a reflection called Bell Hooks. I don't know what else. It's, there are three pieces to that title. Loving and family? I don't know what it's called. But check it out. It's a good one. And so Bell Hooks recently passed away in December. She was a feminist, that I, a critical feminist that I followed. A critical black feminist that I followed. And, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm yawning. <laughs> and uh, she, um, I was just, I, I'm not, I don't want to rehash that reflection. Go check it out. But I was doing some, uh, she had written a piece about when you grow up and you don't understand pain and abuse and the people who love you are the people who hurt you, it's not an easy thing to do to understand what love is. If you've never detangled yourself from, like, like if you've never, if you've never given yourself permission to say that was a shitty thing, that love felt shitty. If you've never given yourself permission to acknowledge pain at the hands of somebody who loves you, then you have a distorted view of what love is. You do not have a healthy view of love. And her argument was that a lot of people, not like I talk about, yeah, I'm from intergenerational trauma. That's my way of owning the shit. That's my way of doing that. But most people, but, but no one, how many people say that? Like when I did, I got trained on trauma. I got some trauma training last semester. You guys know I talked about it. What they said in that training is that everybody has a trauma score. We all have a trauma score, but we all don't talk about it because we normalize it and we normalize it. Like, and here's the deal. It's okay with, it's okay with not being burdened by the trauma. Like who wants to listen to someone all the time talk about their trauma? I know. Okay. I hear it, but <laughs> I, so I get it. You don't want to walk, you don't want to walk around talking about your trauma all the time, but you probably shouldn't know what your trauma score is because that trauma score is impacting how you interact with other people, how you interpret the world, how you report out the world. And if you don't own that, if you don't acknowledge it, your perspective and your perceptions are tainted by that trauma. You don't acknowledge it. See, normalizing a thing is problematic because you're not acknowledging how it is impacting you. Period. So one of the reasons why I say in every episode I'm from intergenerational trauma because it gives me a way of sorting and separating. 
Now, it doesn't mean that I'm still not impacted by it. No, but it gives me permission to have a consciousness. And anybody who comes to this podcast, you understand, I'm putting you on notice. Hey, I acknowledge this is where I come from. If you hear that trauma coming up in, in my talking, it's okay if you just go, eh, I'm going to filter that. She comes from trauma. I don't know if I'm going to fully own and hear everything that she has to say because that's, you know, she's biased because we all have a bias. We all have biases and we don't acknowledge it. Own your shit. Own it. And that makes me think about this typology community in numbers three, four, and five on my list. <laughs> I'm loving the connection I'm making. People don't want to own their shit, but they they want to get on and they want to become content generators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave that alone. Mm-hmm. I'll leave that alone for now. I'm coming back. I'm going to address that on, under my pi- primary podcast. I'm not going to do that here. But anyway, so with my dad, he's, um, you know, he was complicated and he was toxic and he would never say he was abusive. Right. And then that makes you wonder, well, what, what is abuse? What actually is that? We, we should, we, I should do a topic, a conversation on that. What actually is abuse? We use that term loosely, right? And I think abuse is, is causing harm to another person. Physical, financial, psychological, emotional. That's a complicated situation too because some people cry abuse. And you never remove yourself from the situation, right? This is a problem that I have. How are you going to call somebody an abuser and you staying in a relationship with them? At some point, you got to acknowledge that you like it. I know some of you don't want to hear that this is tough. This is a tough statement, right? And if you guys don't like it and you think I'm wrong, I'm here for it. Please send me a message, your nidom.wordpress.com. <laughs> because I'm here for that. Because I don't want to sound like I'm blaming the victim. I don't want to do that. Because sometimes people can't leave that abusive situation. I get that. But then it, let's talk, let's say that. Then the real, the real culprit isn't always, sometimes it is, the abuser. Sometimes it's the situation that does not allow you to leave the abuser. Then we have to talk about stuff like heteronormativity and patriarchy and capitalism and sexism and racism, right? And we don't want to talk about those big macro issues because how do you blame the invisible? It's easier to blame something that's tangible, So we ignore the invisible because it's difficult to name the invisible. It's, it, it's, it's difficult to blame the invisible. So we'll, let's just talk about the abuser. But the only, the abuser can only be the abuser inside of these macro systems inside of the invisible. That's the only way. That's the only way. I'm on fire. It took me a minute to get into this pocket, but <laughs> I may have lost many of you with talking about, I spent 10 minutes talking about the list. 
All right. Hopefully, if you know me, hopefully you 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 hung around. So that's the complication of my dad, right? And so I fought back with him. I never had to fight him physically, but I warned him pretty aggressively. You know, if you ever put your hands on me, as you have put your hands on this person, this person, this person, this person. If you ever put your hands on me, you will never forget it. You will never forget that you touched me physically. And I will enjoy every bit of teaching you that lesson. I said it to him like that. Was that threatening? Mm, you can call it what you want to call it. Was it crazy? Probably. <laughs> I meant it though. And he knew I meant it. And he never put his hands on me. And he never put his hands on my double sister. Because I would have been crazy for her as well. And no one else, there's no else, no one else in the world has received that side of me. I don't. Because here's the deal. No one, I don't, I don't care enough. Like no one gets, my mother doesn't even get that side of me. And my dad didn't get that side of me either. Because I kept myself away from his crazy. I wasn't going to put myself in proximity so he can put his hands on me. And I didn't let him do the psychological once I understood what he was doing. Once I understood the psychological abuse. And the emotional abuse, I started removing myself from him. But when he got sick and diagnosed with cancer, that's when it became complicated again. Because of my love for him, I know this sounds, this is crazy. Like, you know, I still had love for him, right? I still had love for him. He was my dad and he was my daddy. And what I have had to explain to my double sister because there's a little gap between my sister and I, and it's around my father in his death because we're not grieving him the same way. And I'm okay with it, but I think my sister feels that I need her to grieve him the same way. I don't, I don't need her to grieve him. I get it. She didn't have a connection with him the way I did. So this is where she's more in alignment with my single sister. I have a single sister and a double sister. You have to listen to other episodes and talking, uh, hearing me talk about that. I didn't even know I was going to get on this podcast and talk about this, but. So my double sister and my single sister have something in common. They didn't love my father the way I loved him. They also experienced him differently than I experienced him. So I don't judge it, and I know it. I witnessed it. And as much as I could protect my double sister, I did. So when when we were kids, and uh, my my double sister doesn't have a, a lot of history, a memory of being in the house, living in the house with my father. I do. And there were times when he would be physically abusive to my mom, and... 
I'm five years older than my sister. I would go and get her as a baby, and I would take us into a room and shut the door. I was a protector at that age. That's type 8, you guys, in the Enneagram system. Most people who are type 8s have had to be protector in an abusive situation when they were younger. Um, so go read that if you, that sounds familiar to you. But yeah, at five, six, seven years old, I had to protect a baby. And in some ways I protected my mom in my, in the, own, the ways I knew how, but I physically protected my sister. And growing up, I was her protector. More so than I was her sister. And that was something that we had to work through. And my single sister, that's probably one of the things, one of the reasons why we're not close. Because she is adamant about not having me as a protector. Because she had to protect herself because we didn't grow up in a house together. We're 20 years apart. So she doesn't know me as a protector. She doesn't want to know me as a protector. She's had to protect herself because my father was physically abusive to her. I didn't experience my father as physically abusive. I experienced him as financially abusive and psychologically and emotionally until I could understand. Once I learned that's what he was doing, I was able to deal with that. But until then, now I watched him be physically abusive to other people. I watched that, you know. Anyway, it's so complicated. It's so complicated. But I brought all of that up just to say that there was a period of time where he was daddy. Like, can you understand that duality? Like, I watched him being physically abusive. And he was daddy for me. He didn't become psychologically and emotionally abusive until I became an adult. An adult woman. He had problems. I think he had problems with women. And I always wanted to know what was the deal with his mother. Because he had problems with women. He loved women. But he had a problem with them. That's where the abuse surfaced. It is what it is, Dad. If you hear me, that's what it is. So anywho, um, I can grieve him being daddy. I can grieve that. And he was daddy all the way up until, like I said, I was a done adult. And our relationship didn't become toxic until I would say, like, it was where I could no longer ignore it. My 30s. Mm, that's not true. I think my mid-30s. By my mid-30s, I realized. And then, and then when I turned like 41, I was I became not intolerant of it in my, in my early 40s. And it's just really within the last 10 years. And I removed myself from him. And I cut myself off from him. But that's a long time to be in relationship with someone. And in that time, 40-year period, 35, 40 years, we had a spiritual intimacy. I said all of that to say that, why I'm grieving him. 
Do you understand how complicated that grief is? And I've talked about that, like, right after he died. I did some episodes in September and October talking about the complication of his, the, of his death. But I have not gone back to listen to any of those episodes. I'm not ready to. I'm surprised I'm talking about it now. Oh, my God. But in saying that, I haven't grieved. I don't know how to fully grieve. And when I say I haven't fully grieved, like when my grandmother died, there was a deep wailing, like deep sorrow. And it was physical. It wasn't just intellectual. It was, was it internal. It was a physical manifestation. It wasn't a lot. There was a there was a moment where I remember being on the ground. Suffering her loss, that death. And I never had that with my dad. Never had it. When my single sister caught it, said he had passed. There was a wail that I had, like a wailing that I did. Like um, maybe two minutes. And then it just went, went right inside of me. And it's just been locked in there. Only time I've cried is you guys have heard it. I have not done a lot of crying, but I feel like it's locked in my body and I want it out. <laughs> but I don't have a way of reconciling that. I don't know how to do it. And I don't know. A lot of it, I think, is because I'm an INTJ. I don't know how to connect to that side of me. I genuinely don't know how to do it. It's, it's going to have to be something that overcomes me. Because I'm going to analyze it before I am going to emotionally experience it. I'm going to analyze it first. And then the analysis interferes with the, with the crying. It interferes with it. So anywho, I guess I'm going to start closing. That was just number one. <laughs> Death. So I'm thinking about him. I think about my granny. You don't hear me talking about my stepfather. He died the year after my granny passed. So one death was 17, 2018, and 2021. Those were some big losses. And um, I don't, I was listening to this INTJ chick on YouTube. And she was just comparing the INTJs from the INTPs. And she was talking about who's going to be more likely to be into woo-woo, I guess. That terminology, woo-woo, which I still, I don't, I can understand what it means in context, but I never looked it up. What the hell is a woo-woo? <laughs> but I just think anything that's probably mystical, mystical, imaginative, I call it otherworldly. She said the INTJ would be that because of the NIFI. I agree. But we don't talk, INTJs, we don't talk about that out loud, but we do have it. And so there is a part of me that is very much intrigued by the other world. There's a, and I've talked about this before. I really don't even know what else to say. I want to, I want to open this up. 
you know, so long if you're, if you're raised Christian or probably any, any mainstream religion, there is, there's a notion of an afterlife. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I believe. I have a hard time believing that there is this afterlife that mirrors the present life where we're walking around with bodies and we're interacting with each other. And I have a hard time believing that. But I would not lie. I would be lying to you if I said I don't want to believe it. I want to believe it. I want to believe that there's an afterlife. But then sometimes when I think about stuff like sexism, racism, patriarchy, capitalism, I'm like, what if that all of those macro systems carry over into the afterlife? No, thank you. <laughs> and there's there's text. There's Christian text that talks about when you die, you get these jewels. You get your crown and you get certain jewels based on how you live. That's a hierarchy. That's a ranking system, people. That means in the afterlife, you're going to be ranked. Holy Toledo. So, but sometimes I'd say, I think about spending time with my granny in afterlife and yeah, I'd love that. Yes. Yes. I would love it. <laughs> having a cup of coffee with her. Sitting down, having that intellectual intimacy. I would love that. I would love it. I would even love to have a time with my dad. I would even love to fight with him. <laughs> listen, listen. <laughs> I have to tell you some dreams that I have about my father, like since he's passed. I don't know what to make of him. I don't usually do dream analysis. Anybody who follows Carl Jung, you know he was really into dream analysis. I don't know. I don't talk about it. I don't feel equipped to talk about dream and analyzing dreams in a public way. But I have a pattern. There are dreams that I experience as patterns that make me go, hmm. So even it has a meaning, even if it's just psychological, even if it has nothing to do with the person I'm dreaming about, it has everything to do with me and my own psyche. There's a pattern. So I've experienced my father in dreams. There's a pattern there. I don't want to talk about it right now. some point I will. I used to dream about my grandmother a lot after she passed. That's not on repeat. Every once in a while, she'll come up in a dream. When my stepfather passed, I experienced him a lot in my dreams. So I don't know. I listened to this podcast, and then they do dream analysis at the end. They, they cover Carl Jung, and then at the end of the episode, uh, the end episode, they start doing some kind of thing. A listener will call and tell them about a dream, and then they do a dream analysis. I don't listen to it. <laughs> I never listen to those. Those they, they just don't seem interesting to me. So anyway, anyway, so anyway, I just think of so I'll end it here. Um, so death, the other world, what is that? 
there is Christian text in the Bible that says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't can't tell you where that's at, and I'm 95% confident that that is scripture. I think I got it verbatim, but you better go check it out for yourself. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What does that mean? So you have to talk about what is the body? What is the body? In order to talk about what is the body, you have to talk about what is the physical realm? What is the physical realm? The body is connected to the physical realm. What is it? Now, although I'm not sure how to talk about the other world, the afterlife, I will say as a person who's an intuitive, my intuition, I can locate it in my body. I, my intuition is not just connected to SE, well, the sensory world, I can connect it to my physical body. I don't know about other intuitives. I can't speak for you. You need to figure out how you connect to your intuition, but it's located in my body. So it makes me think about the body as it relates to the physical world, even the idea of cremation, right? All of that. I listened to a, <laughs> I listened to another podcast. Um, it's a crime podcast, and I don't usually like to listen to crime because I don't like to. It makes me paranoid. But um, they they have been able to find a way to determine a substance in the body even after you've been cremated by your ashes. Technology is something else, y'all. So they can do an autopsy, if you will, on your ashes. That's fascinating. So all of it just makes me think about, you. to me, you can't talk about this world without talking about another world. You just can't. So those of you who are atheist or agnostic or like I'm into science, you cannot talk about this physical world without saying, without imagining or considering another world. And you cannot consider another world. You can't talk about the spiritual world or the afterworld without talking about this world. So that's all I have for that. Number one. We took 50 minutes to talk about number one. And I was going to connect that to her. I was going to do my other straggler. I'm good. Are you? I'm not going to try to pick that up right now. I'm going to close it here. I don't know what to say. I don't even know if this episode will get any downloads. It definitely put me in a heavy mood, and I was in. I was pretty good when I hit the start button, but I know I have to. I'm gonna have to find a way to grieve my dad. I've got to find a way. I truly believe it's interfering with. I think. I think it's just interfering with some stuff I have to do in the world. And then part of me this morning was like, "Dude, just he's not even gone a year." Let yourself be in the unknown grief. Why do you have to solve it? Check. I've grieved. Check. It's done. Moving on to the next thing on the list. <laughs> grief is not checklistable. That's how I want to treat it. I want to treat it like, yes, I've grieved it. I'm done. Moving on. <laughs> it is not. It's trapped in the body. 
And I've got to be okay with that. But I'm not. But I should be. So. If this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about death and grief, this world, the other world, the afterworld, the other life, any of it. If it connects to a conversation you've had in the world with other people, will you please take this link and share it with those participants? And if my moving about in this reflection has caused some randomness in you, I would definitely love to hear it. Because I just think there's so many unknowns here and we don't linger in it. So we have, we live in a world that is afraid to be imaginative, afraid to be abstract, afraid to be unbound. Fear, I, I bet you there's a word for that. The fear of the unknown. I'm going to look that up, I promise you. I bet you there's a word for that. I think we're governed by that. Anyway, if you went off into your into an unknown space, into your imagination, to the weirdness, I like I call it, I would love to hear it. Please find your way to me. My website is yournidom.wordpress.com. That's the best way to do it. There's a contact section. You could just contact me. I would love to hear from you. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter, your NIDOM1, Facebook, NIDOM Leadership. Nope, no, no, no. That's the old one. That one is not up. I think I, I have that closed for now. There is a page called Your NIDOM. There's no picture, there's nothing there. I keep getting indications from Facebook. Please finish setting up your page. People cannot find you. <laughs> Um, but it is a page out there. It's called Your NI Dom. And then YouTube, Your NI Dom. Let me give you your assignment. Okay, I have a two-part question or two separate questions that connect. And um, I'm going to fumble my way here because I don't fully know how to frame it. So just bear with me. It's two questions. Number one, how do you use your I want to say intuition, but not in a not in a strict traditional interpretation of what intuition is. I want to call it an apparatus that's beyond the sensory world. Your non-sensory apparatus. It's a part of you that can think beyond the physical, beyond evidence. Is it your imagination? Is it a deep knowing? I don't know. But it it transcends the sensory world. I'm going to call it your trans-sensory apparatus. That's what I'm going to call it. How do you connect to your trans-sensory apparatus? It's the part of you that can think beyond the evidence, beyond the sensory, beyond the physical. How do you use it? How do you engage in it? When do you find yourself being non-physical? When do you, is it when you imagine a thing? Is it when you intuit a thing? Is it when you wonder? When are you more likely 
to be non-sensory driven. What is that time? And then the next question I have is, what, how can you strengthen it? What would happen to you if you did more of that thing? If you did more speculation, if you did more imagination, if you did more wondering, how would that impact you? I'm curious. I'm curious about that as a concept, as a phenomenon, to be more imaginative, to be more imaginative, to be more speculative, to be more wondering beyond the physical. How would that impact who you are in the world? How would it impact your relationships? How would it impact your work? How would it impact your intimacy? Your your acts of intimacy? There's been a lot in this reflection. I'm going to go and make a cup of coffee. I'm going to come back and do another one. I'm going to try to tackle some stuff on this list. I had no idea that I was going to linger in number one like that. But anyway, y'all. It has been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until I come back, be well. Bye.